right. Whenever you're ready. We're live. Oh, we're live? So we're live. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, this is Rick and Chris, and we're here to deliver uh, another session of John Clayton's Does God Exist uh, recordings. I want to say tapes, but they're not tapes. Uh, <laughs> that That's a thing of the past. Cassettes, eight tracks. Uh, cassettes, eight tracks, uh, you know, uh, reel to reels. <laughs> uh, the recordings, and that's the most general. <laughs> slow slow movies, guy. yeah. Uh, Charlie Chaplin type stuff. <laughs> um, Clayton today um, introduces a a new piece of what he's doing. It's not a new topic because he's alluded to it uh, on more than one occasion. And but it is a fundamental uh, component of this discussion um, that branches off from his uh, original question, which is the title of the series. Does God exist? Um, when I say the word evolution, uh, what's uh, what's the first thing that that pops into your mind? Um, is it something positive? Is it something negative? Um, is it neutral? Do you have a kind of an open, unbiased response to the word uh, evolution? Uh, it's not a four-letter word, either literally or or, or figuratively. Um, <coughs> what he does for us uh, starting today is he uh, attacks this uh, issue of uh, evolution and how evolution um, assumes creation rather than uh, refutes creation. Now, that may sound heretical. That may sound like, well, that can't be. Um, evolution teaches this and evolution teaches that. Well, what, what we're talking about here in his laying out this, this groundwork for several sessions here um, is not the theory of evolution. It's not uh, what he refers to as neo-Darwinism, neo which I don't have a good definition for. Maybe he'll come up with that at some point. And it's not uh, naturalistic uh, theory or naturalism, um, which he does say uh, goes against what the Bible teaches. Uh, in fact, all three of those uh, teach things that the Bible would not sanction. Evolution, pure evolution, um, and the definition that will allow him to provide for us, on the other hand, uh, is something that does exist and something that the, is, is supported by what we see around us. And evolution assumes um, a beginning of some, some sort in order for those changes to take place. So as we enter into Lesson 25, um, entitled Evolution and God. Let's listen to what Mr. Clayton has to say. Welcome to the Does God Exist video presentation program number 25. 
We've been talking for the previous 24 programs about matters related to the existence of God. How do we know there's a God, any kind of God? What has to be the nature of that God? Why the God of the Bible? Why Christianity? Why Jesus Christ? That's the basic thrust of this series of videos. And our fundamental theme, our most fundamental theme has been that science and the Bible, that science and faith are not enemies. That a person can logically and intelligently and rationally believe in God. The question of evolution has nothing to do with that. One of the things that always distresses me is that I hear people talk about the evolution-creation controversy. <laughs> there is no evolution-creation controversy. Never has been, never will be. Because evolution doesn't deal with creation. The creation question deals with how do we know how space came into existence? How do we know how time was created? Or was it? Where did matter and energy come from? Those are not kinds of questions that evolution deals with. Evolution doesn't explain creation, it assumes creation. Evolution assumes that matter energy has already been created and that there were a certain set of parameters that govern that matter. When we talked about the design evidence for the existence of God, we mentioned the fact that in the creation there are so many different mechanical things that have to be chosen for stable matter to exist, for carbon-based life to exist. There has to be a particular set of variables relevant to electric charge, the mass of the atom, magnetic force, and all those kinds of things in order for stable atoms to exist. That's not what evolution talks about. Evolution assumes that the creation has taken place. It assumes that at least as far as our planet is concerned, there were a certain set of parameters governing the Earth, those things we have discussed. Once all of those things were in place, then evolution offers a theory as how it got from the inanimate matter that we see around us hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, how it got to, from that to me. So we're not dealing with creation in these discussions. We're not talking about the existence of God. There are many well-known scientists who were also fundamental believers in God. Francis Collins come to mind, the man who was the director of the Human Genome Project, establishment of the human genome. Henry Schaefer. I always liked Henry Schaefer's statement about his philosophy, his religious views connected with his research. Schaefer said, the significance and joy in my science comes in those occasional moments of discovering something new and saying to myself, so that's how God did it. My goal is to understand the little corner of God's plan. And this man has been one of the most productive scientists of the 20th and 21st centuries. I mentioned to you earlier that 
as a science teacher for 41 years in the public schools. When this kind of issue would come up, my response would always be, well, we're just understanding something about how God did it. And if that's what you believe, that the creation is in some way connected to God, then you're not going to find anything in this class that's going to be a threat to your religious beliefs. We're simply looking at the process by which things came to be as they are. And it's interesting that when you read the works of Charles Darwin, you don't see this negative, hostile approach that's so prevalent today. Darwin said things like, I've looked at everything as resulting from design laws. Well, if there are design laws, then there's a designer. It's important to understand that decisions of this type, then, are not dealing with the existence of God. It always bothers me when I hear somebody say, well, I don't believe in God because of evolution. That's an incredibly ignorant position. Evolution has nothing to do with the existence of God. What it does have something to do with is how we interpret the Bible. What it does have something to do with is our understandings of whether the Bible is a book of ancient silly fairy tales, or whether it in fact is credible and in fact has evidence that it is the Word of God. That's a theological issue. It's not a matter related to the existence of God. So the first point that I want to make is we're not talking about the existence of God from this point on in our discussions. We're talking about the credibility of the biblical record. Now, it is important to define some words here. And perhaps the first word we need to define is the word evolution. Because for many people, evolution is a dirty word. I've, I've seen religious people, you know, you say, I believe in evolution, and they go, ah, can't believe in evolution and believe in God. That's un incredibly ignorant, incredibly unfortunate. The word evolution simply means an unfolding type of change. An unfolding type of change. America is evolving. Maybe you think it's devolving, but it, it's going through an unfolding type of change. Technology has evolved. Those are correct uses of the word. Biologically, I've made this point once before, but let's make it again. I know everything is bigger and better where you live than anywhere else, but let me ask you something. Do you have any 40-pound radishes where you live? Now, this is an example of evolution. And it's unfortunate that people aren't careful with definitions. Evolution is an unfolding type of change. And these radishes are a new species. The textbook definition of the word species is that it is a group of plants or animals that can interbreed and produce fertile offspring. Variations in that definition because of modern discoveries, you will see sometimes additives made to that. But very simply, these radishes you're looking at right now cannot interbreed with their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandradish and produce fertile offspring. Technically, scientifically, it's a new species. And we recognize this. We understand this. I don't think anybody questions this. Hey, these things are fantastic. They go to maturity in 60 days. They have incredible nutritional value. They biodegrade very quickly. I'm told they taste terrible. But anyway, the point is, it's an example of a new species. 
Don't confuse the word species with the word kind. In the Bible, the word kind in the Hebrew was from the Hebrew word men. The Bible is very consistent with its use of the word kind. In 1 Corinthians 15, 39, we read, all flesh is not the same flesh. So here comes the listings of kinds. There is one kind of flesh of men. There is another kind of flesh of beast. There is another kind of flesh of fishes and another kind of flesh of birds. Now we'll talk in some detail later about what that involves. But right now, let's let me point out to you, it is not saying that there is a flesh of blue jay, a flesh of cardinal, a flesh of sparrow, a flesh of hawk, a flesh of eagle, a flesh of penguin, a flesh of ostrich. It's saying a flesh of birds. It's not saying there's a flesh of catfish, a flesh of salmon, the flesh of flounder, the flesh of, it's saying the flesh of fish. And how broad that is, we'll talk about later on. The point is that the word kind and the word species are not the same thing. And it's very important not to be confused about the way in which these words are used. New species do come into existence. This is why we have problems with insects, especially with our crops. This is why we have difficulties with certain ailments, certain problems, diseases that we have. And it's important to understand that in science, this is an important issue. This is how we produce more food. This is how we fight disease. This is how we fight pests. It's very important that we understand that these are not things that have any theological significance. They're not things that are opposed in any way, shape, or form to the Bible. So it's important to understand that principle. I think most of us would recognize that there were no peekapoos on Noah's Ark. Whether you talk about the peekapoo or the cockapoo or the miniature St. Bernard, all of these dogs evolved from some ancient dog-like ancestor. Somebody says, well, that's not evolution, that's variation. In the high school textbook, this is how evolution is defined. The example I've just shown you is an example of evolution as it's seen in the textbook. The BSCS version biology book, Molecules to Man, which is probably the most evolutionarily oriented high school textbook ever written, had 28 chapters dealing with evolution. 24 of 28 chapters dealt with the kind of thing we're talking about right here. Because it's so critical to so many things. We understand the charlet has come about because of principles involved in evolution. And all of the variations we see in cattle from the highly cues to the modern black Angus has been an application of evolution. And sometimes animals turn out to be related. You might not think are related, like this animal. This is a cross between a goat and a sheep. It's called a jeep. Now, now this is not a, a fake picture. And one of the things that's happened in recent years is that we have had discussions about microevolution versus macroevolution. And the difficulty here is where did micro end and macro begin? I think it's important to understand that, that many times these things are contrived terms. Evolution is unfolding change. And by the way, this animal is not sterile. So strictly speaking, 
it would say that these various species are related and that maybe our definition needs to be broader than what we have traditionally thought the word species to mean. And the Bible talks about this. You remember what Jacob did with Laban's flocks? Take a look. It's interesting that in that story that sexual stimulants are used, barriers are used. It may not be entirely clear everything that was going on there, but it is important to understand that the principle is understood in animal husbandry today. This is evolution, an unfolding type of change. Now, when most people think about evolution in a confrontatory sense, they're thinking of one of the theories of evolution. And probably dominant has been neo-Darwinism. In recent years, there have been other proposals. Punctuated equilibrium, Stephen Jay Gould, Niles Eldridge, found some ways of better accommodating the fossil record with a different concept of evolution. It really is just a modification of neo-Darwinism, but it has a very great implication. And I might add, it was closer to the biblical concept. In recent years, we've had people talking about cladistic taxonomy and how the, the classification system perhaps should not be based upon evolutionary principle, but should look in terms of structure, and so the structure drifts. So when people talk about the theory of evolution, I have to say, well, which theory are you talking about? And it's important to understand that really the question here becomes more a question not of evolution, but of naturalism. Naturalism is the belief that everything can be explained by science. One of the things that atheists will say in response to this video series is that there's a lot of the areas we're talking about that will change as better knowledge is acquired. No question about that. And no question there have been people who have used the God of gaps mentality in the past. Well, we don't understand this, so God must have done it. The problem with that is that when some way is found that explains how it happened, that does not require God to be a player, then God is no longer necessary. And there have been atheists who have said, quote, unquote, I no longer need that hypothesis in response to the question of God's existence. Naturalism is an atheistic belief. This is really where the problem lies, not really in the question of evolution. Evolution has implications for how we understand the Bible. It has implications for the way in which we read the book of Genesis. It has implications for whether we view some of the stories in the Bible as allegorical or whether they're historical. And we're going to look at some of those concepts as we move along, but it is not an issue of the existence of God. I'm opposed to naturalism. I think it is very mopic to suggest that everything can be explained in terms of science. But science, if we view it as a friend, is a very constructive thing. Now, as we look at this subject of evolution, start at the beginning, the origin of life. And one of the things that I'd like to point out is that the origin of life issue comes back to what we said at the start of this presentation. Evolution assumes creation. It doesn't explain it. In the question of the origin of life, evolution assumes that the ancient earth 
had a primitive atmosphere made of fundamental gases. And those fundamental gases, according to theory, were materials necessary for the formation of life. A very famous experiment by Stanley Miller and Harold Urey at the University of Chicago in 1953 dealt with how that process might have taken place. What these gentlemen did, as you can see in this diagram, is that they put some fundamental materials, already created molecules, things that we see in space, things that we know can be instrumental in the production of life, into a test tube environment. Methane, hydrogen, water vapor, ammonia, and hydrogen cyanide. This material had an electrical discharge arranged through it. Now, the parallel to the early Earth is pretty obvious here. It's an anaerobic environment. In other words, there's no oxygen in this model. The belief is that the conditions that would have been the precursors of life would have been chemical processes that occurred where oxygen could not burn them up, essentially, where no oxidation would take place. What they did in this experiment was that they subjected this mixture of materials for a week to an electrical discharge. And what they found was that in the trap at the bottom, down below the condenser in this diagram, there was a collection of materials called amino acids. Amino acids are the building blocks of life. You are made of an accumulation of a wide variety of amino acids. That's what builds proteins. That's instrumental in any construction of life, any model that anyone has been proposing. So what had happened was that ordinary molecules, and I want to emphasize again, these molecules are not being created. They're assumed to have been present. What's being explained is how they changed to produce the building blocks of life. Did that with an addition of energy from the electrical discharge without intelligence, without purpose, without design. So the newspapers picked this up, and the headlines read, Scientist Creates Life. Well, it's not life. It's amino acids. Amino acids are a long way from life. In protein synthesis, as you can see in this diagram, amino acids produce peptides. Peptides by dehydration produce polypeptides. These are steps that can be done in the laboratory. And eventually, protein can be produced mechanically from amino acids by chemical processes man can duplicate. Now, in the case of DNA, there are thousands of proteins in DNA. DNA is involved in living things in the production of proteins. So we're a long way from life, is the point. The question remains, what are the conditions of the ancient Earth really like? Did this experiment that you see in this test tube, is this representative of what the ancient atmosphere of the Earth was about? In recent years, it's been very obvious from discoveries that have been made that this is not what the ancient Earth was about. There are massive carbonates in the earliest rocks of the Earth, so oxygen in some form was present. When you look at things like hydrogen and ammonia, these are very lightweight gases. What that means is they can escape the Earth's gravitational field very easily. We don't have much hydrogen in our atmosphere because there's not enough gravity to hold the hydrogen in. The same thing is true of ammonia, same thing is true of methane. 
So the result is that the ancient earth would not have been made of these materials. But even if it were made of these materials, what are the mathematical odds of a protein being produced by chance from this process? And if you've watched our video series, this probably brings you back to the discussion we had earlier about how you handle mathematical probabilities in questions of design. Scientists of all kinds, and by the way, these are not creationists. These aren't people with religious axes to grind. These are people who are well-known scientists who have studied in this field for some time. They have shown that the probability functions are massively high here. And since we've already done this, I won't do it again except to say that once again, the mathematical odds by chance alone are prohibitive. Now, you can propose models as to how things might have been in some way arranged to reduce these odds. If we go back to the original apparatus, you'll notice in the bottom there's a condenser and there's a trap. Why? Because the electrical discharge would destroy amino acids faster than it would produce them. So in this apparatus, something had to suck them out of the way before the electrical discharge would break them down again. What would do that in the ancient Earth? Well, there have been proposals of kaolinite matrices and things of this type that might have had that process. But the experiment, while it's interesting and while it was creative and while it has implications for understanding what might have happened in outer space, is not a picture of how life came into existence. It's a long way from life. And it's important to understand this discussion then that the creation of life remains one of those mysteries that science is still to understand. And I come back, if we understand it, what have we done? We've come to realize what incredible wisdom and intelligence it took to do it to begin with, especially in the conditions of the ancient Earth. We have seen amino acids in space. Nebulous clouds have some amino acids in them. There have been proposals that some of these amino acids may have rained down upon the Earth. Wonderful, creative models. But they are just that. And those of us that believe in God would suggest that intelligence was involved in directing this process to produce life. Now, the next thing we would need to do if we were going to do a complete discussion of evolution would be to look at all the biological evidence for evolution. What you see on the screen right now is a list of biological arguments for evolution. Now, what we're talking about here are any particular theory of evolution. Neo-Darwinism, punctuated equilibrium, cladistic taxonomic drift. And those of you that have had a biology course at the high school level will recognize many of these terms. Comparative morphology. This is a comparison of the body parts. All higher animals have a stomach. There is a similar in body parts. The limbs are similar. You can compare the flipper of a whale and the arm of a human, and you can see bones that are very similar. Those who are studying medicine put in all the bones of a frog, and they learn the structures and the way the bones work. This is comparative morphology. One interpretation could be that everything came from the same source. Another example like this is comparative physiology. We're dealing here with body chemistry. A cow has a thyroid gland, so does a human. Chemically, they're very similar. My wife was uh, a diabetic. 
and the insulin that she had to inject into her body back in the old days came from pigs and from cows. Now we have humulin, which is a synthesized insulin, not as much of a problem for many people. But why was my wife able to take the insulin from a cow or a pig and inject it into her body to enable her to counteract the problems of diabetes? Because chemically, we're very much the same. So we must have all come from the same source. You can talk about genetics and the fact that there are great similarities. You probably have heard that comparisons between apes and monkeys and humans are very high genetically. And you hear people say like, well, you know, monkeys have 90% the same, 95% the same DNA as we do. Well, that is a similarity genetically, indicating we all came from the same source. The problem here is that nobody's ever questioned that. That's not where the debate is. The question is not whether we all came from the same source. The question is, what was the source? Was it a naturalistic thing, something that happened totally by complete mechanical accident? Selected, perhaps, uh, natural selection operating on this, but strictly naturalistic terms? Or was the single source a single mind that created with intelligence and purpose and with doing those things, using those things that are the best things to use in the particular ecological system in which the organism functions? We have other arguments dealing, for instance, with what are called vestigial organs. I can't wiggle my ears, but I know some people that can. There are animals that use ear-moving muscles in very creative ways, very important ways. Our ear-moving muscles are not really that important to us, so it's considered to be vestigial. There's a membrane in the eye called the nectitating membrane. In some animals, especially those that live in aquatic situations, the nectitating membrane comes across the eye sort of like a, a swim mask so they can see clearly underwater. Ours doesn't serve that purpose because we don't live underwater. In the old days, and this is when I was a kid, the appendix was listed as vestigial. Tonsils were listed as vestigial. We don't say that anymore. Why? Well, we've learned that the appendix is part of the immune system of the body, and it's really not vestigial. They don't take tonsils out at the drop of a hat like they used to. Why? Because the tonsils are an important part of the germ-fighting mechanism of the body. So sometimes vestigial organs turn out to be useful when we just didn't understand their function. And there are many examples of that. You may have heard people talk about junk DNA. Well, just recently we have found that junk DNA is not junk at all, but that it in fact has purposes we didn't understand in our earlier understandings of genetic materials. So are there organs that we don't use because we have evolved? The question is not debatable. Yes, of course there are. As our jawster has changed, the wisdom tooth has become a vestigial structure. And interestingly enough, and this is a difficult to explain, many children today do not even get wisdom teeth or even any structural function close to almost sounds like Lamarckian evolution. That's not obviously what's going on. All of these biological arguments for evolution are things that provide interesting resource material for understanding the process of how we got to be what we are. Now, in a medical sense, it's important to know that. When we start looking at agriculture, it's important to know that. 
in a religious sense, it simply tells about how God operates, how God designs, what intelligent processes God uses in the things that he has accomplished. In reality, the question of what evolutionary model, if any, we accept, the question of whether evolution is true or not true, and when I say evolution, I mean whatever theory you're talking about hangs in the fossil record. The fossil record is the record of history. It is the record of what actually happened. You could have a wonderful, beautiful, complete biological theory about how things got to be as they are. But if that theory is not backed up with historical data to support it, then it's nothing more than another interesting guess. So whatever you believe, if you believe in a particular theory of evolution, the question is, does the fossil record support that theory? If you reject evolution in whatever version you might be talking about, whatever theory, does your rejection agree with what the fossil record has to say? If evolution is ever proven, it will have to be proven, whatever theory you believe in, by the fossil record, the historical record. If evolution is ever disproven, whatever particular kind of evolution you're talking about, it has to be proven by the fossils for the same reason. As Grassi in his famous textbook on evolution said, and said well, the process of evolution is revealed only through fossil forms. And so in our next presentation, We'll look at fossils. Okay, we are back. Um, it's amazing how much you can learn in just uh, one little 25 to 30 minute session, uh, or at least be reminded of things in, in, in one, of his, one of his sessions. I remember um, in 1964, boy, it's hard to say, but I remember that. Uh, I figured it out, but if my math is right, that's 57 years ago. I don't remember that. I was a freshman. Yeah. I was a. <laughs> That was unchristian, wasn't it? <laughs> um, I was a freshman in um, uh, Greenville High School, uh, Greenville, Illinois, and I was taking uh, biology. And our um, biology teacher um, was introducing, I believe we were the first class to have this new uh, biology textbook. And it was called uh, BSCS. And I think that was biological studies, what is that, or curriculum studies, biological sciences, curriculum studies, or something, something like that. Um, but uh, one of the characteristics of, of that BSCS biology textbook uh, was a <clears throat> probably a stronger approach uh, toward uh, evolution and what he says would be naturalism um, or Darwinism, neo-Darwinism. That um, than what we had had before. Um, I'm just I'm going to read you some uh, historical background 
on uh, how we got to where we are right now with uh, our teaching of evolution in, in, in our schools in just a minute. But um, I remember that there was an uproar and many of us can remember the, um, the problems that still occur in our schools today when uh, those who are opposed to any vestige of religion, anything that can be related to religion, um, enters into the, the hallowed halls of education, um, they throw a fit. And then we have uh, lawsuits and we have court cases and and um, it's, it's been a, a series of things over a long period of time. A lot of that is based on our Constitution. Our Constitution has what's uh, called the Establishment Clause uh, in the first clause in the First Amendment. And that Establishment uh, Clause um, deals with this idea of freedom of religion and freedom from religion. Um, if you remember, our country was established because, uh, at least in part, you had um, the uh, King of England uh, with the Church of England imposing uh, on people things that they didn't think uh, they should be uh, dealing with. And so religious freedom was one of the reasons, um, if, if history serves me well, and one of the reasons why many people came to this country. Um, and so when they got here and when they, after a hundred years or so, uh, started organizing a nation and developing laws by which they were going to be governed over the next, from that time up until today, um, they decided they would deal with religion in this establishment clause. And uh, in the uh, First Amendment, there is this clause that says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise of. So you've got two sides of, of that establishment clause um, where one side is dealing with um, not allowing the uh, government to establish any particular one religion or requiring people to believe anything um, religious. <coughs> and on the other hand, you had to protect the freedoms, the religious freedoms that they ha had decided that they wanted um, uh, instituted in this country to preserve the freedom to be religion, religious, to practice their religion. So you had this tension between uh, government sponsoring and controlling religion versus the individual's ability to exercise uh, his or her religion and not being prohibited from doing so. Well, and the problem uh, occurs when you get into public spheres um, like uh, our government, like our education system. Now, if my memory also serves uh, correctly, the Constitution does not deal with education, except in, uh, I think it's the Tenth Amendment, any, any uh, activity not dealt with in this Constitution is reserved to the states. Uh, maybe it's the Tenth Amendment, I'm not sure, 
that says that's called the reserved clause, meaning that it goes back to the individual states. So individual states have from time to time had to deal with this notion of religion in the schools and um, prohibiting the government from sponsoring activity that would promote a religion or religion in general um, versus the independent ability of the individual to exercise uh, freely his or her religious beliefs. Um, I'm just going to read you a little bit about the uh, where creation and evolution, uh, how that has transpired over the years in uh, education, just as a quick a quick review. And it's not going to be long. In American schools, the Genesis creation narrative was generally taught as the origin of the universe <clears throat> and of life until Darwin's scientific theories became widely accepted. While there was some immediate backlash, organized opposition did not get underway until the fundamentalist modernist controversy broke out following World War One. So um, very few of us can remember World War One mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and several states passed laws banning the teaching of evolution while others debated them but did not pass them. Then we had that famous Scopes trial. It was the result of challenging. Uh, the law that said you cannot teach evolution. Uh, Scopes lost his case and further states passed laws banning uh, the teaching of evolution. So at one time, even though Darwin had had made his um, uh, assertions <clears throat> about the origin of man and natural selection and things that we are going to be talking about here very uh, pointedly over the next few weeks, um, the states still were in support of a uh, creation approach uh, to how we got here on this earth. In 1968, Supreme Court ruled on Epperson versus Arkansas, another challenge to these laws. And uh, this was probably uh, within the first few years of that new biological series. So it could be that, you know, that that approach spawned uh, this, this next series of challenges. And the court ruled that allowing the teaching of creation while disallowing the teaching of evolution did indeed advance a religion and therefore violated the uh, establishment clause of the Constitution. Creationists then started lobbying to have laws passed that required teachers to uh, teach the controversy that uh, at least present both sides of the issue, not favoring one or the other, but a fair and balanced approach. But this was struck down in 1987 <clears throat> in Edwards uh, versus Aguilar. Creationists then moved to frame the issue as one of intelligent design. And uh, I think Clayton will talk more about intelligent design as we go along. He's already mentioned it as um, it's not science and it's not religion. Uh, it's it's neither of those. And so while there are features of intelligent design that people thought was going to allow them to kind of, you know, under the, the door um, slip in at least some aspects of the creation story, um, that was ruled against also. 
um, in a district court in Kitzmiller uh, versus Dover Area School District as recently as 2005. So the issue obviously has remained contentious with various U.S. states um, debating, passing, or voting down alternative approaches to creationism in science classroom. There is no bar in U.S. law to creationism being taught in civics classes, current affairs, philosophy classes, or even comparative uh, religion classes. But for the most part, <clears throat> and it's been my experience, um, and I don't keep up on, on every case that comes comes uh, down um, the pike. There is a ban on teaching creation as a science or any in any of our science classes. Like we say, comparative religions class, if you're looking at what Christianity teaches versus Judaism versus Hinduism, something like that. Philosophy classes, current affairs, or even in civics class, maybe even history class as, as you deal with how our country was founded and, and why our country uh, was founded. What happens with this is the fact that all of us go to all of us go to school. Most of us go to public schools until uh, the rise of private school education, uh, where you were free to uh, teach uh, religion along with the regular curriculum. Um, until homeschooling became popular. Oh, when did homeschooling in the eighties? Probably 80s. the mid to mid to late eighties. Uh, you had had people. For this very reason and for reasons that are related, other things that were uh, being taught in schools, other things that were occurring in, in public schools, you had an entire movement, a homeschool, uh, homeschooling movement uh, that has caught on and uh, many individuals participate uh, in that, especially those individuals who don't want their kids, uh, their children taught um, natural selection as an explanation for how this world began and how we got to where we are today. Did you want to say anything, insert anything at this point? I agree. Well, that doesn't help. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know you agree, uh, and I'm being facetious. Um, so it's it's another one of, of these these things that we in the public sphere, and all of us are in the public sphere. You can't withdraw yourself to a monastery or a cave or uh, up in the mountains somewhere. Some do, but uh, that's unrealistic for most of us. And uh, we we have to engage in in the public sphere. And uh, as we have said in in other uh, previous sessions like this. Our beliefs are going to continue to be challenged. They're going to not only continue to be challenged, but the uh, the rhetoric and the uh, intensity of those situations is probably going to increase. Uh, we have all sorts of issues today that uh, are being accepted in mainstream thought as well as incorporated into policies and even into laws that 
conflict with what the Bible says um, about uh, marriage, um, about gender, um, about uh, any number of things where the Bible is going to be continually and increasingly viewed as um, a, a book of myths rather than anything to uh, mold your life by, let alone have any credence uh, concerning uh, a life after this life. For those of us who believe um, in those precepts and those concepts and what the Bible <coughs> teaches uh, in this regard, as we have said, our, our task is going to get increasingly difficult and we are not going to be able to um, hide should that be our approach to uh, dealing with these types of issues. The Bible is, is very clear. Um, and as we have said more than once, the persecutions that the first century Christians uh, underwent for suffering for the cause of Christ, uh, we can't even identify with. We, we have no frame of reference for that other than what we read uh, about it in the Bible. And the details are probably not there in the Bible, but the details are in history and talk about how horrible um, that that time period was. The first century church that started in Jerusalem and spread uh, from there to all Judea, Samaria, and then all parts of the world uh, at that time um, was a, a massive movement. Uh, it, it was amazing how quickly the gospel spread and with what uh, ready acceptance it had in the hearts of both uh, Jews and Gentiles. Um, with that, though, came uh, the mm, scrutiny of governments and the Roman government being in charge at that time was generally um, allowing uh, conquered territories to to govern themselves um, and to uh, exercise whatever religion uh, they wanted during the Gospels, uh, during the life of Christ. We had um, the Jewish people pretty much controlling most aspects of life. They had Roman government uh, officials there to to uh, arbitrate or to uh, to make decisions. Uh, concerning uh, different pieces of, of what went on in that society. But by and large, I think the only prohibition was they couldn't publicly execute somebody uh, for a perceived uh, religious crime. And so that's why they had to go to Pilate uh, to get Jesus crucified. They were able to beat him mercilessly um, if he had died in that process. They had Jewish laws that would have uh, have actually, but I think that the Romans the Romans had them scourged, wasn't it? Yeah. I think the Romans did the scourging in that case. <clears throat> All they did was bring him up, and and uh, the the primary charge was civil that he was claiming to be a king and that he was going to overthrow uh, Caesar, and so that got them in the door for uh, for Pilate and others to consider. Um, but we know how that went down. There was false testimony and uh, Jesus was crucified. Um, so living in the first century as a Christian, um, 
probably the vast majority of those individuals, and I have no way of justifying that statement, but the vast majority of those individuals uh, suffered for the cause of Christ in a way that we haven't encountered yet, but we're heading in, in that direction. The only reason I say the vast majority is uh, it's alluded to in almost every letter that Paul writes. Uh, Jesus talks about it uh, as something that will occur if you were followers of mine. Um, as he said, the uh, Paul reminds them of the current affliction um, under current conditions in Romans 7 when he's talking about whether to marry or not marry. Um, uh, he uh, in almost every letter that Paul writes, he is encouraging them to remain steadfast. Don't go back under the pressure. Not only did they have the, the civil and, and governmental pressure um, of prohibiting them from exercising their free uh, right to religion, uh, which was not in their constitution. Um, he, um, they also um, had uh, persecution from the Jews. The Jews, as you know, were not happy about um, Christ, had him put to death. The fact that he uh, res was resurrected and that initiated a movement known as the church and known as, I think, rather facetiously Christians uh, was, was a derisive term at, at one time, uh, taking the name of Christ, um, was something that they weren't happy about. And uh, now they had competition in the area. Not only that. Christianity was for the fulfillment of the old law. And as Jesus said, I did not come to replace the law, but I came to fulfill the law. Well, Paul, who had been one of uh, Judaism's most ardent supporters and promoters and chief attackers of those who had uh, gone into Christianity, um, had now become a turncoat. He had flipped to the other side. And now he was being just as effective as a Christian as he was in persecuting Christians uh, before he had the encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. So even though they may not have been persecuted by a local government, they were persecuted by local Jews. And uh, Paul was uh, continually harassed as he went around Asia Minor and and all his missionary journeys where uh, the Jews would follow him from town to town. I don't know who was supporting them. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they got their their livelihood unless it was from uh you know people back in in Jerusalem, but they there was a concerted effort to to thwart whatever Paul uh was doing. So I say all that to talk about uh, to introduce from our perspective uh, things that we'll be talking about, I'm assuming, the notion of uh, evolution and uh, how Mr. Clayton is going to deal with that topic and then how what he has to say impacts us in our lives. And that, and by and large, I think that's what our little uh, post Clayton sessions have been about is how does, how does this manifest itself uh, for us? What does that mean for us as we take what he gives us and attempt to use it 
in our lives so that uh, we can better uh, defend the gospel. That when people say, oh, you believe in the Bible? You must not believe in science. He has been very clear about that. If we believe in the Bible, we have to believe in science. And science and religion have to support one another. If they don't, then it's either bad science or, as he said, bad theology, or maybe it's both of those things. I thought he had uh, several things uh, today uh, that were interesting. Um, the uh, I did a little bit of figuring again with my limited math skills uh, that I have. He talked about real briefly uh, that uh, that uh, experiment that Miller and Urey did, and how with the amino acids uh, that was the result of all of all of these chemicals with an uh, electrical charge attached to them, and then you get you get amino acids, and amino acids is is a building block of of uh, life or DNA, and he says you're still still a long way away from life. And uh, those mathematical odds, um, he said, were one in 10 to the 106th power, 160th power, um, or 10 for time. We're talking about 10 to the 243rd power. Now, 10 to the first power is... With one zero, so that's a hundred. Yeah, ten to the second power thousand. is a thousand, and then every time you add another number, you add another zero. So, ten to the two hundred and forty-third power in the number of years. We don't have a word mm-hmm. for that for that number, but a billion years which I don't think anybody is claiming that we've been around for a billion years. They talk about in millions, but uh, in billion of years, 10 to the eighth power is a billion years. 10 to the 243rd time is 30 times more than a billion, whatever that number would be. And this is the mathematical chance that something like who we are today and what we look like and how we're constructed occurred by what they are saying could have happened by chance. Um, It's just infinitesimal possibilities. And these are not his numbers. These are scientists' numbers. Yet, many scientists will say, well, with a little tweak here and a little tweak there or a little anomaly here or a little morphing here or mutation there, it could happen. The problem is they adopt their answer and then try to find a way to explain it. And that's not a way to go about science. They don't do it any other area of science. But in this one, they do. We're down to the last couple of minutes. Did you want to offer anything, Chris? No, I don't think so. I think we're good. 
Okay, um, his uh, title uh, next time, I didn't look at it, but it is Lesson 26. And he's going to talk about something that he mentioned right here at the end. He says, you cannot examine science or religion without the fossil history, the fossil evidence. He says, that is where your proof comes in. And he deals a lot with fossils. And you're going to learn a lot about fossils uh, in in next week's um, next week's study. Cool. Be looking forward to that next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Thank you, everyone. See you next week.